You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life, with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 68th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave me a review on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Instagram or Facebook. Today, I'll be interviewing my friend and colleague, Chester Jackson, known to many as Chet, about being a leader and facilitator of therapeutic and support groups. Thank you, Chet, for being here with us. My pleasure. My pleasure, Kim. My pleasure. Chester Jackson is married with five children. Two are biological kids, two are adopted, and one you have legal guardianship of. He says adoption has been his life's work since 1990. He's held many jobs, but nothing has lifted his spirit and taught him more about life. He was informally adopted at five days old, but he didn't become aware of that fact until age 33. Although in retrospect, he believes he can trace so many pivotal events that served to inform his professional and personal life. Again, I'm really glad that you're here. We've known each other for many, many years, and I know you have a lot to share with us in terms of both the field of adoption, parenting, and leadership. So if you're ready, we'll just jump right in. I'm ready. All right. So let's start with adoption and tell me, how has that shaped your life choices? You know, it, it's, it's funny. When I, when I think about it, and I think about it all the time, oddly enough, and I have been for years, my whole life evolves around adoption. Sometimes I wonder if I was born to be involved in adoption or just once I got involved in adoption that life ordered itself so that it made sense. So many of the, the things that have been monumental in my life have come either as a result of adoption or on the path of adoption through professionally, personally. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's really kind of hard for me to explain, but sometimes I think, just to put it bluntly, sometimes I think I was born to do this work. Oh, I believe that. I totally believe that. You were born and adopted to be able to do this work. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious, just on a timeline kind of thing, I know that you were adopted, but you didn't know until you were 33. I know you've worked in adoption and I know you have adopted two children of your own. So Mm -hmm. chronologically, what came first and how did that happen? Okay. I was born. (laughs) Okay. That's one of the few facts that I know for sure. (laughs) I was born five days later. I left the hospital with a woman who wasn't my mother and the adoption part of it was informal in the sense that there were no agencies involved. There were no social workers. It was just a matter of one woman handing the baby off to another woman. And that was the way it went. And as I grew up, she was still in my life. My birth mother remained in my life as my aunt. She was my aunt, you know, my auntie, as we say. And I had siblings, uh, half siblings, uh, at least that uh, were with her. And at some point in the history, which actually I've been in reunion with, uh, my sister for a while now, my, my sisters. So I, I, I've heard pieces of the story. And, and one of the, story, the, the pieces is that at, at one point, because my mother, and when I say my mother, I mean um, the woman who adopted me, and my birth mother were friends, right? So we'd come together for the holidays, we'd come together, you know, for, you know, just socially. And at one point, my, one of my older sisters said, wow, isn't it amazing how much he looks like so-and-so? And she remembered that vividly because after that visit, 
we never played together again. And I didn't see her until 50 something. Well, I mean, you know, till years later. And she mm-hmm. remembered that from that from from a child because that was the day that I disappeared from from her life. Now, I didn't have any real recollection of it because I was much younger, but it made, made sense. And when I think back on my birth mother, the only memories I have of her are of this kind of sad woman. When I saw her, it was usually party, uh, you know, like Thanksgiving, holiday time. But I don't have any memories of her smiling, being happy at all. And of course, I equate that to the fact that every time she saw me, I was this child of hers that was not living with her for reasons I do not know. Chronologically, there was that. And I, I went through my life and went through my life. I, uh, I always describe my life as I was drifting on. I'm like a leaf drifting on the wind. There were very few things that I wanted for sure, knew for sure. I was just kind of very easygoing in the way that my mother was. Zoom to the, the pivotal point. I went to college, John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. And the only reason I went to John Jay was because during my high school years, people told me that you'd make a great lawyer. You'd make a great lawyer. And I said, okay, that's fine. So I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice thinking that, okay, this would be the beginning of my legal career. And after you know a very short period of time in John Jay, I realized that, no, this was not what I wanted to do. <laughs> now, I had no plan B because this really wasn't plan A. I didn't really have a plan at all. This was just the next thing. I stayed. And unfortunately, I, I got into a program called the Thematic Studies Program. And what they did, it was a whole theme of sociology and psychology, and everything kind of uh, was connected to the other. And we were a very cohesive group. And at that group, I met Pat O'Brien and, and a bunch of other people. But Pat O'Brien would be another pivotal piece of my life. Now, Pat O'Brien wanted to be a social worker. Just to give you a sense of who he was, he started a group called Students Against the War. And this is 1977. There's no war. <laughs> you know? So we used to rag on him about that forever, you know, students against the war. And that was so typical of him because he was always a socially minded person. So anyway, so there's Pat, right? And we're going along. Now I'm in college. And suddenly I realized that my mother is, we're on an equal basis now. I'm an adult. She's an adult. So I have my adolescence. <laughs> I just kind of went nuts and hung out and did all kinds of things. And oddly enough, Pat didn't do the things I did. He wasn't a drinker and he wasn't, you know, hanging out at the parties and all that. I mean, he'd always come to the parties because I think he enjoyed them, but he didn't drink. He was always the last man sober. As a result of that, he'd make sure people got home and, you know, he was the responsible adult. So we go through the, the four years. I really didn't really expect that I'd see Pat much beyond that. I mean, we were friends, but, you know, we weren't like bosom buddies. So the years go by and I was working in the retail field. I've spent many years in retail. I was working at a video store. As a matter of fact, that's how long ago it was. <laughs> I was working at a video store. Pat calls me up one day and he says, hey, uh, I just started a job and I think you'd be perfect for it. And I was like, oh, well, what are you talking about? And he said, I started working at this adoption agency. And I was like, adoption? What do I know about adoption? And he said, it doesn't matter. We'll figure out a way for you to work with the families and the kids because you're good with people. And I said, well, okay, well, I can do that. So I went over and I interviewed, and he was the regional director. He wasn't the executive director. The executive director was a priest, and which was a sign. <laughs> and I met with him, and I was very sure that, that I wasn't going to get the job because I, I was unqualified, basically. And I didn't have any children. I didn't have any socials, you know, any background in, in child welfare or anything like that. And so I went back to Pat and I said, well, you know, thanks. I appreciate it, but I don't think he's going to hire me. Long story short, he told me not to worry about it. And he did. I got hired and I found myself in this incredible internship, you know, where I was following Pat through the paces of everything that he did during the course of the day. And I worked with the kids and I worked with the families. 
I felt like a calling, you know, and it really helped that the executive director of the agency was a priest. It was very much a mission for him. And he passed that on to us. And we all had this kind of missionary zeal. And it just felt like, wow, that's the place I'm supposed to be. Suddenly I had a purpose. So now I'm cruising along. During that time, I met the woman who would be my wife. We were going to Canada one weekend and I needed a copy of my birth certificate. I didn't know where it was. I didn't think about it. I said, okay, I'll go down to Vital Records, get a copy. I go down to Vital Records and I'm not in there, which is what the lady told me. What are you talking about? I'm not in there. Went through this whole thing. I remember the moment she, she kind of tapped on the glass and, and called me to the glass and I leaned in and she said, go over there, pick up that phone, call your mother and ask her what name is on your birth certificate. And now I'm incensed now, you know, you know how, you know how uh, vital statistics, it's a line, this, that, and the other. Okay. So I get it. I go to the phone. I pick up the phone. I call my mom. And I said, Ma, you know, I'm down here at vital records and they're telling me to call you and ask you what name is on my birth certificate. And she paused. And there was this like, what? And I was like, Ma, this, this shouldn't be a difficult question. That's literally what I said to her. I said, this shouldn't be a difficult question. What's happening? And she said, well, tell them to check on. And she said, my birth mother's name. And I was like, who the is, is that? You know, and she said, and this is just give you a sense of where my mother was. She said, don't worry, she's dead. I was like, okay. Now, just to tell you the power of adoption and the way things go, I put that in, I went back and I told the woman what she said. And she said, yep, there you are. She wanted pieces of ID and I didn't have any, obviously, in that. I ended up getting a voter registration card at the time. And my wife and I went to Canada. Now I'm working in adoption. I've been working in adoption for maybe two years at this point. Yeah, a few years, right? And so my wife is like, I bet you're adopted. And I just, I just couldn't hear it. I just couldn't hear it. I was like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. How could I be, you know, this this old and, <laughs> not, and not know? Yeah. I mean, what what are you saying? That's that doesn't make any sense at all. And so that whole weekend she was like, That's what it's gonna be. So I came back, of course, I came back. And I sat down with my mother and she's, she's asking me, so uh, how was the trip? And I was like, I, I, no, we're not talking about the trip. <laughs> and so, and I looked over because she was laying on her bed as she was often laying on her bed, smoking a cigarette. And she just had this devastated look on her face. And I was like, what is it? And then she handed me this paper, which was my original birth certificate. And on the birth certificate, her name was nowhere there. And in that moment for me, it was like, you know, you know, those moments in the movies where you, the sun comes up and it's like, hallelujah. <laughs> I was so relieved because I knew in that instant that it wasn't me. All those years when I knew something was off and I did, I didn't know what it was, but I knew something was off. I just assumed as kids do that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not cute enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm too tall. You know how kids blame themselves for everything that's happening in the house. And I fundamentally knew that there was something wrong. And all along, I assumed it was me. So when I had this evidence in my hand, my whole life had changed. I was so relieved. And people thought, you know, well, weren't you angry? And this? I, I said, no, I was, I was redeemed. <laughs> I was like, thank God. I knew something was going on here. I'm just glad they were the ones with the problem and not me. Yeah. And so and then in that moment, and it was short-lived because I, I turned back around and my mother was destroyed. She was just broken. I could just see it in her face. She looked like a little old lady all of a sudden. Tears came to her eyes and she was just, and so of course I shift from the parties on to, <laughs> to, uh, uh, you know, wow, this is just a piece of paper, you know, and I had a whole story, you know, this is just a piece of paper. There's nothing in here that, that's going to change how I feel about you and yada, yada, yada. I go to comforting her and that felt good. And then that was short lived <laughs> because my mother being my mother said, well, I just wish that I had gone to my grave without you knowing that that hit me in the throat. 
That was like the four-year-old me in the throat. She slapped the baby <laughs> mm. and the baby was angry because I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> I didn't say a word. And then that's where the anger came. And I was furious. I wasn't furious as the grown man. I was furious as the child who needed to know this, who had been suffering in silence for all those years, who had been thinking that something is wrong with me, that how come I'm not good enough, that what, you know, what's happening here? Am I crazy? You know, all of this stuff. And you're telling me here as a grown woman, as my mother, that you wish you would, would have gone to your grave and left me to discover this on my own. I can't tell you how angry that made me. Now, I never was able to have that conversation with her because she could not have that conversation. And I did talk about how, you know, wouldn't it have been so much easier if you had gotten some resources, you didn't have to struggle so much. You got to realize during this time, I'm doing parenting classes and we're talking about these issues, how important it is, the honesty and kids deserve to know and yada, yada, yada. And I'm trying to be as gentle as I can with her because I understood that, you know, I, I can't, couldn't walk in her shoes. I have no idea what was happening. I had no idea. I didn't have no idea that she had had miscarriages. I had no idea that my brother, who's five years older, was another child that she got the same way from a different woman. I understood that there was a story here that was bigger than this little old lady and me. I just couldn't bring myself to like shake her the way I wanted to and really get the information from her. But I internalized it and I was very angry for a long, long time. I thank God that, and this is all part of the course of things. I thank God that I was working in adoption and I was working with a, an agency and a mentor, Pat, who helped me to understand that there's a normalcy to this, that the kids aren't crazy. The kids are normal in the context of what they've gone through. The me thinking I was crazy part was over. Now I was realizing that I had some issues surrounding the fact that my whole life was a lie and that I'd been abandoned and that there was a story there that I would never know because both of my mothers are dead at this, you know, at, at this point. And that's when the, I wouldn't even say the healing began because I was still very angry and, and disappointed in all those things that abandoned children are, who at least understand that they're abandoned. That was the correlation, again, between my life reflecting and being exactly what I needed in the moment that everything was turned upside down. If I had still been working at the video store when I got this information, I don't even know that I'd be here today to tell you the truth because I would have had no place to process that. Yeah. I would have had no, nobody to take that to. During that process, my wife and I were talking about adopting. And I think primarily because we were just, uh, we weren't sure we wanted babies and it was like, uh, that's scary kind of stuff. And we were thinking maybe a seven-year-old and, and somewhere in there, I found a kid that I was recruiting for who was 16 years old, six feet tall, you know, 280 pounds. And he was, he was a sweetheart. He could have been a child that I raised, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, his personality was, he was a good kid and he's a good man now, you know? And that's pretty much all I ask, <laughs> you know? And he was a good kid in the sense that he cared about other people. He was sensitive, he was caring. He wasn't a thug, he wasn't a hoodlum. He wasn't a bad kid by any stretch of the imagination. Did he have challenges? Absolutely. And still his life, I'm sure that a lot of folks on the outside could look at his life. He's 45 years old now and, you know, think, oh my God, that's a success. You know, <laughs> there must be a low bar. But the reality is I'm very proud of what he's managed to do with his life and the way that he lives his life, you know? And there was a time when he was much younger that I was less proud, you know, but, but he has matured. He's doing well by being who he is. Okay. So all of those elements, my meeting Pat, because first of all, if it wasn't for Pat, I would not have gotten the job because I wasn't qualified to be working in child right. welfare. I wouldn't have gotten the job. I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have met my wife. <laughs> I wouldn't have discovered my history. And if I did, I wouldn't have had any place to process it. 
And that would have been a nightmare. I was a, only a few years out of what I used to call the people suck phase, where, <laughs> where there was a lot of negative energy going on in my life. Probably the most attractive thing about my wife when I met her was, uh, when I got to know her, is that she was and still is the nicest person that I've ever met. And I can't tell you how desperately I needed that. I needed to know that there were still decent people out in the world and that there were still people who were happy and there was joy and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, we were fast friends for a long time. And then, of course, it blossomed into other things. But, but you know, still today, people ask, so what's the secret? The secret for me was I found somebody that I liked. And I mean, liked in the fundamental you know, I like her energy. I like her spirit. I like her heart. You know, I want her in my life. That was the first part of it. <laughs> That's the one constant that has absolutely remained. She is still that person. Because of having her in my life, I was able to not only continue to do the work, because at some point we moved to Pittsburgh from New York City. So I left that agency and I wasn't qualified to get a job in, in Pennsylvania, but I actually did, oddly enough, but that was another phase. But I had an opportunity to go back to New York and continue to work with Pat. I hesitate to say how many women would have said, oh, sure, I'll be a single mother while you're playing around in New York for all week and, and I'm home on the weekends. But she did. And as a matter of fact, as we went back and forth about, is this the right thing to do? She said, it's the right thing to do because you need this work and not just the job work. You need to process and you need to get from it what you do. You know, I've seen the shift in you. This is what you need to be doing. And she allowed me to basically turn her into a single mom for 14 years, going back and forth to New York. It was a grind. And I missed a lot with my kids. I mean, I was home on the weekend. I had three-day weekends every week, which wasn't bad. But, I mean, you miss a lot during the week. I mean, uh, I wasn't at most of the teacher conference things, a lot of the things that happened during the week. And I needed to do this. I, honest to God, believe I needed to do this. First of all, I had to have the opportunity. And then I had to have the right partner that would allow me and encourage me to do it. I couldn't have been as committed and passionate about the work if I wasn't an adopted parent. That's just the way my head works. I can't understand it if I'm not in it. Again, having the right partner allowed me to adopt because I wouldn't have had the courage. I wouldn't have had the, the wherewithal. I wouldn't have done it on my own. So all of these elements fell into place. And here I am. And here I am. Sometimes it, it absolutely amazes me how one thing led to another, and so on, and so on, and so on. And the other thing I tell folks about, because sometimes people wonder, you know, why are you so passionate about this after so many years, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on, because this is very selfish for me. This whole journey has been as much about my own development and my own accepting of my own circumstance and my own experience, and I think that that comes through with the families. As an adopted parent, I can look them in the eye and say what I believe, I tell people all the time, the only thing I know is what I know from what I've lived. The rest of it is, is just like anything else. It's I heard about this, I heard about that, but I know bop, 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 bop. And, and what that is, is my lived experience. In terms of my own dealing with my own adoption issues and stuff, is I've had, unlike most adoptees, I've had 30 years of talking about it, exploring it, being pissed off, being angry, being hurt. I remember when I first started in the work, we were an older child adoption agency. You know, we, did, we weren't those baby people. We didn't deal with that. If folks called us up and they wanted a baby, we'd send them away. You, you need to find somebody who does that. We don't do that. We're dealing with the older kids, the important kids. Blah, blah, blah. And I had very little compassion. 
as the years would, would fold, I began to meet people who suffered from infertility, who desperately wanted to have a child. And, and this baby thing, as we used to call it, was a real thing. And I began to you know, open up as a human being and say, well, that's an incredible loss. You know, that's an incredible loss. And then, and then of course, as folks come through and, and they want to adopt and, and they'd say, you know, well, you know, I, I can't have a baby or, you know, all of those kind of things. It informs your opinions. It informs how you deal with people on a person-to-person basis. And it, it makes you a better person because you're bigger than you were before you started. You know, And mm-hmm. I feel that way almost with every session, every one of the groups we lead, every one of the, any interaction where I'm talking to adoptive parents or adoptees, I have the ability to just kind of lay it bare where some people, and especially professionals, professionals are, are very good at telling you the whys and wherefores, but sometimes they can't quite get at the meat and they won't say the things that need to be said and open up about what's really going on. My 30 years of living my life in public, basically with these folks, I don't care, <laughs> you know? And I will say to a family, well, doesn't that sound like maybe could this be happening? And sometimes it's like, oh my God, I don't want to go there, you know, but that's the work. That's the work. I think that's what makes me an effective, to the extent that I could say, that makes me an effective trainer. I always have something to say about stuff, but I don't think I ever would want to be a therapist because a therapist is about fixing and I'm not about fixing. I'm merely about pointing out. I just want to point it out. Did you think about that? I mean, could that be happening? What you do with it is up to you because I honestly believe that fundamentally people are going to do what they're going to do. When I was a foster parent trainer in Pennsylvania, which I was a terrible foster parent trainer because my goal was not to turn people into foster parents. My goal was to give people the truth. And if they still decided to come forward, then I'd say, okay, now we do the, we do the paper. But that didn't make for a whole lot of foster parent getting, you know, because people would think about it. And I, my philosophy used to be, if I can talk you out of it, then I need to, <laughs> you know, that's if, something, right. if something I could say says, oh, no, this is not for me, then that's good. That's a success because that's better now than when Johnny's in your house, because the last thing Johnny needs is another disruption. Yeah, you know, another but that, rejection. Yeah, that doesn't make me a, uh, <laughs> an effective recruiter, you know, because that's I, right. I bet you weren't. <laughs> They hated me. My supervisor, actually, Kathy, she didn't hate me. She, she hated the numbers because they were on her. And so she had to get on me. I just said to her, look, I, I can't do it. I, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I'll give the folks the truth and some of them will do it. I think adoption and, and even foster care, but especially adoption, that's something that the reason you do it is from someplace else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's from someplace else beyond your head, even your heart sometimes. You know, yeah. there's a need there. I used to sell cars. I shouldn't say that. I was a car salesman. I sold one car. <laughs> but they used, they used to tell us, you know, at the training sessions and everything that people want to buy. People come into the dealerships wanting to spend this money, get out of their way, help them do that. And it's the same thing with adoption. That people that come and put up with the abuse that the adoption system is, they have to do this. And those are the ones you want to connect with in a way that can help them have a productive and fulfilling experience, which will translate into a decent life for some child. But those folks who are like, oh, maybe, uh, do something else. (laughs) Do something else. There are lots of ways you can help kids. Do something else. Yeah. So you had said that you really never got to speak to either of your moms about this scenario in your life. What do you think that conversation would have been like had you been able to have it? Yeah, that changes almost minute to minute. With my mother, 
Nini, as uh, she, my my youngest son Brandon, uh, he couldn't he couldn't say Grandma Geneva, so he used to call her Nini. So we all called her Nini. I just would have liked to have tried to ease the burden for her. She was a great woman. I mean, a great person. She was nice. I mean, she was so easygoing. And of course, I've come to realize that uh, so much of that is tragedy and hurt and loss. That kind of kills me that there was nothing I could do about that. As for my birth mother, um, uh, when I think back on what happened, I don't have any animosity or any hurt feelings or anything like that. I would like to know what, what her hair smelled like. I would like to know, you know what her voice sounded like, what her touch was like what it would have been like growing up with some of my brothers and sisters, at least having a relationship with them, because we, we still could have done that if my two moms <laughs> would have um, been able to, to get past whatever. And we could, could have still been cousins, as they say, could have still had a relationship that here at adulthood, it would be easy to say, oh, really? I didn't know. Boom. But now as we get introduced to each other, it's just such a loss. It's such a loss. I say to adoptive folks as they come through, I said, you have to appreciate that the biological relatives of these children, you will never be that. You can't do that. That's not something that should be, oh boy, I wish I, you know, I wish I were, you know, but if you love somebody, you, you want to give them everything they need to go out into the world. And what they're going to need at some point is some centering. And the centering could be around where they come from and who they might've been. The truth is always better than, than a mystery. Yeah, I would, I would think that would be right. No matter how raggedy it is, it's always better than a mystery. Yeah. So what would you call a success in adoption? That's something that has evolved for me over the years. Think of Colin Kaepernick as an example, right? Here's an adopted guy, professional athlete, has a nice life even before he decided to have values. You know, he has a nice life and, you know, he's going along and, and we look at this as an adoption success story, right? What was the, the Sandra Bullock movie, uh, The Blind Side, right? Oh, right. Uh, mm-hmm. Here we are, this poor kid with nothing. And now he gets adopted by this wealthy family. That's a great life. He becomes a football superstar. That's a great life. And not to say that those aren't success stories, but success, I think, for adoption and foster care should be just like it is for the rest of life, you know? Success is relative to what one's capable of achieving. I think about my son, Robert, right now, right now, uh, you know, he has, a, he has an apartment, uh, he has <laughs> children, he lives and he's doing his thing. But I know many people would look at that not as a success because he's not anything fancy. You know, he's making ends meet, you know, he's got assistance and all kinds of things going on. But from where he came and to where he is, he's happy. <laughs> he's as happy as a hurt person can be. He's happy and he's moving forward and he's living his life, you know? Success is relative, but I think if you come into if you come into adoption wanting to provide a home for a child and you provide that home for the child, the commitment should be, I'm gonna provide that home and family until I die. That's a success. What that looks like, it's gonna vary. Sometimes you're gonna be happy, sometimes you're gonna be sad, sometimes you're gonna be miserable. Some are gonna be doctors and lawyers and singers and accountants, and some are gonna be criminals and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But that's, that's true for everybody. But the one thing that makes family work to the extent that it works is that it is forever. And it's, it's a grounding thing. It's something that says, this is your place in the world. You know, you are a Smith. This is who you are. And with yeah. adoption, we cut the kids from who they were, and then we don't allow them be, <laughs> to be fully who, who they, we claim they are. Success is, if you, if you want to 
adopt the child and raise a child as if he were your own, then you just do that until you die. That's a success. So it's about the commitment. It's about, yeah, when you adopt a child, you don't get to do over. There's no give backs. And that child doesn't stop needing you because they turn 18 or 21 or some other magic number. That's right. And whatever the circumstance is, you know, some people think, oh my God, my child turned 18 and left the house and doesn't want to see me again. And it's not about what the child child wants. You made a commitment to be his parent. So hopefully at some point when he does want to see you again, you will welcome him back. You know, just like you would with a child that was born to you. We can't control what happens, you know, when they become adults and go out into the world. We don't always have the best relationships with the kids we get birth to. There shouldn't be any different standard for kids in adoption. If you want to be a parent, a parent has one definition. It's forever until you die. That's it. All the rest of it is open to negotiation. I haven't done work with adoption as much as I have foster care. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this dynamic is the same. I think many foster parents expect the kids that they foster to be grateful. Yes. And to thank them. And I don't know if that same dynamic exists in adoption, but parents need to understand no kid on the planet Right. Really thanks their parents for being a parent, right? right. I mean, maybe at some point. Yeah. But I, yeah. I always say, I, <laughs> if you're having children to have that relationship of unconditional love, you got to wait a long time, yeah. at least thirty years for most <laughs> kids. That's right. And Especially and boys. when <laughs> right, and when you have adoption, it's got to be harder because. Yeah. Yes, you're the person who gave them a name, you gave them a home, hopefully you gave them love, but also they've lost so much that you, no matter how hard you try, really can't replace that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The amazing thing about me for adoption and, and even foster care, see the difference in foster care, the main problem with foster care is it's designed to be temporary. You can't be a parent temporary. That doesn't work. So it's really a different arrangement. We call it foster parenting, but it's really foster babysitting. It's really foster boarding or foster something else. Because you can't really be a parent if you are not in control of your commitment to this child. Yeah. If you're not all in. Yeah. You you just can't. So, I mean, the system is just designed to fail because it's supposed to be temporary so that they go home to their birth people. Now, if there was a true commitment to that, then there would be a totally different thing. There's no reason if Johnny has a problem in his home, it usually isn't his entire family. There's usually somebody in there who's functioning. Maybe not mom, maybe not dad, maybe not grandma. There's an auntie, there's an uncle, there's a cousin, there's a high school teacher. There's, there's somebody in his community that already loves him. That should be the criteria. We need to find somebody that already loves that child and then support them so that they can support him so that he can remain a part of his family. Right. You know, even if he's not living with mom and dad and grandma, he's living with auntie or cousin or uncle. Or Mr. Smith, because it's your best friend's dad. Right. Right. And the trick is find somebody that loves the child already, because that makes all the difference. When you love somebody, (laughs) you find a way you find a way. But in foster care, we pull the kids out to protect them, quote unquote. And then we totally disconnect them from all of those, those resources. And the family's thinking, well, so-and-so is in foster care, so he's okay. They're doing whatever they do in foster care, you know. Obviously, that, that's not the truth. For me, it's not funny, but 
even my adoption experience is not a real adoption experience because I wasn't adopted in the sense that there was no formalization of me going from here to there. I'm not complaining about that. I'm simply saying that even that was unorthodox. Maybe that was because if it had been orthodox, it wouldn't have been allowed to continue. Maybe I would have been moved someplace else. Maybe other things would have happened, you know? I just know in my life, sometimes you, you think about, boy, if there was one thing I could do over, I always think long and hard about things that I wish I did that I didn't do at the time. And there are things that I, I wish I could undo. But I always think about if any one of those pieces would have changed where would I be right now? It always comes down to, for me, right now, where I am and what I'm doing and what I've done, I'm okay with. I'm okay with. My journey as a person is like kicking in. Sometimes I feel like, wow, I'm finally getting to the good stuff, you know, which makes you a little nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like every day, every day, there's something else where I'll turn around and it's, wow. Even when I was working jobs that had nothing to do with adoption, it always kind of found its way in. Like somebody would ask a question about something. It was like, well, I, I used to work at a doctor. And, and then it would be like, you know, I'd, I'd be right back there again. And they'd be hearing something that they hadn't heard from, from, from anybody else. And there were many times that I felt like, wow, they really needed to hear that. I've gotten to points when it was like, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, when I first started out, I was very involved in the kids. We were working with the kids and, and I just couldn't do that because The way I do what I do is when I'm with you and um, we're dealing with whatever we're dealing with, I'm in it. And I just couldn't do that with the kids anymore. I just couldn't go down there. And so it it finally got to a place where I said, look, I can only work with the the parents because first of all, the parents I can shake. I can, you know, I can, I can upset them. I could, I could, you know, and, and, and if you get a parent, if you get the light bulb going for a parent, that's going to make the change. Because I still have faith in the idea of family. Family works when you have somebody that loves you and loves you beyond, you know, the superficial stuff, loves you enough to to care about where you're going to be in 10 years. Why that's not good for you now, and it's not going to be good for you later. You know, workers don't do that. Workers are focused on the time that they're in your life. Parents are thinking about 10 years from now. What's going to happen when you have kids? After they're gone. Yes. They want you to be okay after they're gone. Yeah. And that's what the kids need. That's what they long for. Well, I would truly say that you were born to do this work. (laughs) As you started this interview, that's what you said. And I would 100% agree with that. (laughs) So I hate to say it, but our time is coming to an end. It just goes so fast. And uh, I just wonder if there's anything you'd like to say as closing thoughts for people. Yes. Well, as, as a shameless plug, <laughs> as a shameless plug, I'd like to let folks know that they can contact me at the Adoption and Foster Family Coalition of New York. That's AFFCNY.org. We do have a big conference coming up, a 30-second conference, the end of May. All the information is on our website. You can also call me or call the helpline, the AFFCNY helpline at uh, 888-354-1342. And it's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much, Chet, for being here. It's been great talking with you. And I know for sure I'm going to have you back probably when I want to talk about parenting. I think you're going to be a great addition to that lineup. I love that. So I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Michael Sherlock about leadership in our last show before changing topics to education. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. 
To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.